0: Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Sames. So, what do Russia and the US have in common? Well, they're the two countries with the highest incarceration rate. And in America, the majority of those incarcerated are people of color. Stay tuned to find out why. Mass incarceration and people of color. So I picked this topic because I was inspired by the 2016 documentary, The 13th, by Ava DuBarney, who is also the director of Selma. And if you haven't seen either of those movies, I definitely recommend them. But the, the film is really interesting. The documentary explores this intersection of race and justice and mass incarceration in the U.S. And it's titled after the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which was adopted in 1865, which essentially abolished slavery throughout the U.S. and ended in voluntary servitude, except, and this is a big thing, and this is something that I'll talk about a couple of times throughout the podcast, except as punishment for conviction of a crime. So essentially Duvarney contends that slavery has been perpetuated since the end of the American Civil War, and it's done so through this criminalization and really enabling police to arrest poor freed people and, and essentially force them to work for the state under convict leasing. So all of this is done with the suppression, obviously suppression of African-Americans, with lynching, Jim Crow, and later on politicians declaring this war on drugs that really, really affected minority communities. So throughout time, throughout the period of time between 1865 and, and present day, Mass incarceration has really taken a toll on communities of color, especially Americans descendants of slavery. And and so in the film she sort of looks at this prison industrial complex and and sort of the the influence it has had on African Americans over the past 150 years. So I I think that DeVar, Varney makes a really solid point. And I think it really says a lot of the basic history of slavery and Jim Crow and really looking at as as the film explores the 13th amendment. So let's jump in and look at that year 1865 right so that was a year that the 13th amendment to the U.S. constitution abolished slavery and as I said at the beginning it abolished it except as punishment for a crime and that is a really really key part. So the passage of this amendment really triggered the nation's first prison boom because the number of Black Americans arrested and incarcerated surged. So this was a result of state governments basically reacting to two really powerful social forces. First, public anxiety and fear about crime really stemming from these newly freed Black Americans. And second, economic depression resulting from the war and the loss of free labor. So, state and local leaders in the South use criminal justice use the criminal justice system to really pacify the public's fear, and also to help bolster the the depressed economy. So, all across the South, these black cult codes were basically passed that outlawed behaviors common to Black people, like walking without a purpose was one, or, or walking at night, or hunting on Sundays, or or settling on public or private land. So these laws, which obviously were completely ridiculous, they stripped formerly incarcerated people of their citizenship rights long after their sentences were completed. So among the most well-known examples would be the suspending the right to vote if you're a convicted felon, which we will look at later. But essentially, these laws would allow for freed African Americans to be taken off the, the streets, put in prison, and then also used for prison labor. So Southern law enforcement authorities really targeted Black people and aggressively enforced these laws and that funneled greater numbers of them into the state punishment system. So by the 1870s, almost all of the people under criminal custody of the Southern states, about 95%, were Black. And these state authorities deployed these imprisoned people to really help rebuild the South they actually rented out convicted people to private companies through a system of, of convict leasing, and they put incarcerated individuals to work on, for example, prison farms to that would produce agricultural products. And in Reconstruction South, these were physically attractive strategies given the, the destruction of the South. I mean, everything was essentially de- destroyed, and there's a huge economic depression. So these convict leasing programs that operated through this external supervision model, it was essentially incarcerated people were, were supervised entirely by private companies that were paying the state for their labor. So the state was actually turning a profit and making money off of people, Black people, being incarcerated. So... Although the economic and political and industrial changes in in the US contributed to the the end of this private leasing practice by about 1928 other forms of slavery like labor practices actually emerged so state prison authorities introduced something called the chain gang which was essentially a brutal form of forced labor in which incarcerated people toiled on public works. So that would be building roads or clearing lands. And the chain gangs existed well into the 1940s. And as with the whole convict leasing before that, those sentenced to serve on these chain gangs were, of course, predominantly black so prison farmer, prison farms also continued to dominate the South as well, and Texas was one of the leaders. They operated about twelve state farm prisons, and of course, nearly one hundred percent of the workers were black so really, this all stems right from the loophole within the Thirteenth Amendment, which again abolished slavery. And indentured servitude except for punishment of a crime so because of this states really did everything they could to exploit that and there was particularly in the south because of of course a lot of those convict leasing and prison farms and chain gangs that existed in the south but something really interesting happened so according to the vera institute of justice between 1910 and 1970 Over 6 million Black Americans migrated from the South to the northern urban centers, and that was known as the Great Migration. So this movement of people dramatically transformed the makeup of both the South and the North, because in 1910, 90% of Black Americans lived in the South, but by 1970, that number had dropped to 50%. So these migrants, typically more financially stable Black Americans, were fleeing racial terror and economic exclusion. So the influx of people overlapped with the waves of immigrants from the southern and eastern Europe uh, areas who continued to disembark and, of course, settle across the country throughout the the 21st century, throughout the first half of the 21st century. Uh, During this time period, the, the dominant white class really... Started connecting criminals to three distinct groups, lower class whites, immigrants, and black Americans. So at the time when at first most black Americans were in the South, now they're moving to the North and now the North is sort of getting into this this idea of like, oh black people could be dangerous, black people could be criminals. So while white and immigrant criminality was believed by, by these social reformers a lot of times to arise from social conditions that could just be, distra- you know, amolated through like civic institutions or through schools or whatnot, they actually had a different take on blacks and, and black criminals. So when looking at black people that were accused of committed of crimes, a lot of people at the time thought, well, they can't be rehabilitated. And a lot of it comes, of course, from these theories of racial inequality. And a lot of that was, of course, developed through scientific, and I use scientific in in quote marks, scientific ideas, right? So kind of this general popular portrayal of particularly Black men as these menacing criminals. And obviously, if, if anybody's seen the film Birth of a Nation, that was released in 1915. It really creates this picture of black people who are dangerous or is a dangerous race they can commit atrocities if they aren't locked up and there's really nothing that can be done to sort of stop them and stop their violence so this was something even though that film was in 1915 that was an idea that really continued on for decades in both obviously the south but then also in the north as well and this continued all the way up until the 1960s when something called the War of Drugs started to take effect. So the War of Drugs, War on Drugs rather, is a term for the actions taken in the legislation enacted by the U.S. federal government intended to reduce or eliminate the production, distribution, and use of illicit drugs. And the war on drugs began during the Nixon administration with the goal of reducing the supply of and demand for legal drugs. But an ulterior racial motivation has been proposed. So the war on drugs has led to really controversial legislation and policies, some of those including the mandatory minimum penalties and stop and frisk, which have been suggested to be carried out disproportionately against minorities. And also the effects of the war on drugs are really contentious, with some people suggesting that it has created racial disparities in arrests, prosecutions, imprisonment, and and rehabilitation. So a lot of scholars have looked at it, including one is a historian and lawyer, her name's Michelle Alexander, and she stated essentially that the war on drugs is one product of a really political strategy known as tough on crime. And that started with Nixon, and that started in the 1960s as Nixon was making his first presidential run. Crime rate actually began to rise dramatically in the U.S. during that time, so street crime started uh, increasing and homicides actually were, were doubling. So anyways, uh, Michelle Alexander writes that while scholars now attribute the rise of crime rates to surge in population of the, the baby boom generation, a lot of conservatives tried to tie the increase to race and crime reports were used as evidence of a loss of morality and also of of social stability in the wake of the or i should say social instability in the wake of the civil rights movement so the 1964 republican presidential candidate barry goldwater he made the connection during his campaign speech and helped to kind of lay this groundwork if you will for the tough on crime movement So in his 1964 speech, he, it was about peace through strength. And he said essentially that, and I quote, if you choose the way of the Johnson administration and you have the way of mobs in the streets, there will be huge problems. Johnson, of course, and his administration was responsible for passing the Civil Rights Act of of 1964. Uh, So he, of course, Barry Goldwater was not the only one to make this connection. Um, Nixon made about 17 different campaign speeches solely on law and order before the 1968 presidential election. And Republican strategist Kevin Phillips, he published... An influential, uh, basically an argumentative piece. Uh, it was called The Merging Republican Majority. He wrote this in 1969. And he said, Nixon's successful presidential election campaign could point the way towards long-term political realignment and the building of a new Republican majority if Republicans continued to campaign primarily on the basis of racial issues using coded anti-Black rhetoric, end quote. So a number of, of policies introduced during the war on drugs have been singled out as particularly racially disproportionate. So let's let's take a look at some of these uh, mandatory minimums. Uh, that that's a big thing. So the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 established this 100 to one sentencing disparity disparity for the possession of crack cocaine. So for example, possession of A 500 gram thing of powder, crack cocaine, would trigger a five-year mandatory minimum sentence, but it took possession of five grams of crack cocaine to trigger the same mandatory minimum penalty. So in addition, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 established a one-year mandatory minimum penalty for single possession of crack cocaine, which made crack cocaine the only controlled substance for which a first possession offense actually triggered a mandatory minimum penalty. And of course, in in 1992, when they started looking at studies, several studies found that the mandatory minimum sentencing caused Blacks and Hispanics to receive receive more severe sentences than their white counterparts. And a couple of years later, in 1995, the U.S. Sentencing Commission actually delivered a report to Congress and they c- concluded that because 80% of, of crack offenders were Black, and I should also point out that 80% of cocaine users are white, uh, an estimated one third of black males, black American males will spend time in federal or state prison at some point in their life. And a lot of that, according to the Sentencing Commission and according to a lot of studies that were done, a lot of that stems from crack uh, arrests. So that number is actually is more than double the rate from the 1970s. And it's also over five times higher than the rate of white males. So really within the last few decades, ever since the war on drugs has has really kicked off, we've noticed a huge, huge difference. So essentially, what's driving the imprisonment of black men? Well, I mean, arrest data shows a really striking and obvious trend that arrests of blacks uh, black men has actually fallen for a lot of violent and property crimes but it has increased dramatically for drug-related crimes so as of 2011 when they did a couple studies Drug crimes comprised of about 14% of all arrests, and this miscellaneous category that sort of includes drug paraphernalia, possession, and all that that type of thing, accounts for an additional 31% of all arrests. But just 6% and 14% of arrests for violent crimes and property crimes, respectively. So the war on drugs did essentially, well, what Nixon and others hoped it would do. It locked up people of color. Okay, so the United States, as I mentioned, is the world's leader in incarcerations. So right now there are 2.2 million people in in our nation's prisons and jails, and that's a 500% increase over the last 40 years. And changes in law and policy, not changes in crime rates, explain most of these increases. And according to the Sentencing Project, the racial impact of, of mass incarceration, sentencing policies, implicit racial bias, and socioeconomic inequality really contributes to the racial disparities at every level of the criminal justice system. So, okay, today, people of color, and that's not just African Americans that would be uh, African Americans, Latinos, um Asian Americans, etc. make up about 37% of the US population, but we make up 67% of the prison population. And overall African Americans are more likely than white Americans to be to be arrested. And once they're arrested, they're way more likely to be convicted. And once they're convicted, they are way more likely to face stiff sentencing. Black men are about six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men. And Hispanic men are more than twice as likely to be incarcerated as non-Hispanic men. And so... Strict sentences don't only affect black men. It also has an impact on women as well. It has an impact on their families and it has an impact on the community. And a lot of it comes down to structural racism because that really exposes a lot of black women and children to the harmful stressors that would be associated with the criminal justice system, and actually interesting enough, too, the number of incarcerated U.S. women has overall like actually increased dramatically in the recent decades. It was at about, and this is again according to the Sentencing Project, it was at about twenty six thousand in nineteen eighty. Now is at about 219,000 in 2000, uh, well, when the study was done, it was 2017. So perhaps unsurprisingly, right, the spike of, of female incarceration has disproportionately affected Black women, especially very young Black women. So Black women are overall about twice as likely to be imprisoned as their white counterparts. And if they're between the ages of 18 and 20, so really, really young, they're about three times more likely to be imprisoned as, as their white counterparts. And if this current incarceration trend continues, They're saying about 1 in 18 black women will be imprisoned at some point in their lifetime. So a lot of times we don't realize that. We don't think about that because obviously the numbers of black men that are are disappearing and being uh, put in prison and all of that is is huge. But the numbers for black women are also increasing as well. And black women and, and their families, especially within those younger generations are are also more likely than their white counterparts to have some type of indirect contact with the criminal justice system through the incarceration of a household member. So There's been a couple uh, studies that are uh, that have looked at this where African-American across generations had more than twice the odds of having an incarcerated member, whether it's a, a parent or a brother or a cousin or something like that. They have way more likelihood of having that than than white children and this is even this is true even after controlling income levels, geography, uh, family history of addiction, mental illness, abuse, etc. So this the reason I say this and the reason I also talk about this too is that even after the family member has served time in prison, it still has a huge effect on the families and it has a huge effect on the community as well. There're still a lot of lasting issues after that person has served their time in prison, and one issue that I wanted to touch on is disfranchisement, and this is essentially when you the when suffrage is taken away that it would be the right for somebody to vote It's taken away from a person or a group of people through practices or prevention basically of a person exercising their right to vote. So, Black Americans of voting age are more than Four times as likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population. So one of every thirteen Black adults is apparently disenfranchised, and a lot. Of, and I know that certainly some of this is changing because there are actually states that are um, doing away with their their laws that basically prohibit somebody from voting if they have been locked up. And so some states, uh, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and until very recently, uh, Florida, uh, they had very, very huge rates. Uh, it was one in five blacks are actually not able to vote. So in total, there's been about, they estimate about 2.2 million black citizens were banned from voting and 30% of the of those who are not able to vote in America are black. So certainly this is is really affecting the black community and and we know that voting is important obviously we're several weeks away from from a really big election and not only is voting something that as Americans we feel like okay this is our inherent right to do but voting is also a way to put people on whether it's a local government or national government to basically pick people that represent you. So if you're a person of color and you're in your communities, you're, and you really want to have people of color uh, in, in office, or you want to have women in office, but you can't vote. It's hard to see a change in your community. It's hard to really make a difference. There are actually, interesting enough, there's two states in the U.S. that actually allow people in prison to vote, and those states are Vermont and Maine. And coincidentally, they also happen to be the two whitest states in the country. So in many other states, incarcerated people are stripped of their vote, but they remain counted as part of the population. And so this is in, this is interesting because then they count towards the electoral college, but they aren't actually able to to contribute they're not actually able to vote and have a voice and there's again there's been a couple studies there's one that was done in 2003 that found the larger the state's black population the more likely the state was to pass the most stringent laws that would permanently deny people convicted of crimes the right to vote and i have to say that The America, this is one of those things that America really is isolated on this issue, and I don't mean that in a good way at all. South Africa, Canada, Ireland, and even here in Spain, they actually allow everyone in prison to vote. Germany does disenfranchise people for certain offenses, like treason, but it's only for a maximum of five years, uh, Finland and New Zealand they also do that as well, but it's only it's a couple of years and then I believe France they have certain rules about uh I think how long you are disenfranchised and also what your crime is. So when we sort of compare America to these other countries, I think one thing becomes really clear. The only reason our practice resulted in racial disparity is that we designed it that way. So we have a lot of work that needs to be done and we have—we really need a justice system that has different responses for different solutions. So I think that's shifting gears to treatment, pre- prevention, long-term public safety solutions as appropriate. and. I think this also means taking a practical approach to the criminal justice reform. We can decrease crime. We can enhance public safety. We can make more responsible uses of our resources. I think in particular, there's a couple of things that we should do. Eliminating mandatory minimum sentences and cutting back on excessively lengthy sentences. For example, by imposing, I don't know, maximum a uh, 15-year prison sentence or or something like that. Mandatory minimum sentencing, particularly in the case of something like crack cocaine, which I'm no expert, but I mean, I don't think it's, it's that much worse than regular cocaine and yet it carries a, a far more strict punishment. I think that's something that can be changed. I think shifting resources to community-based prevention and treatment for substance abuse would be great. Uh, maybe investing in interventions that would really promote strong youth development and also respond to crimes committed by youth in age-appropriate, evidence-based ways. So, I mean, we I think we've all seen a lot of things uh, in the news recently of of young children, twelve years old, in school, and police coming in and arresting them for for doing the things that kids do or. or or just different things that are not age-appropriate punishment. I think really examining and addressing the policies and practices, conscious or or not, because sometimes it's not conscious, that contribute to racial inequality at every single stage of the justice system. So again, it's not just the fact that Black people are getting arrested at higher rates. It's Once they're in that system, they're oftentimes going to get uh, longer sentences. They're going to get uh, worse punishment. So I think really addressing that at every single point of the justice system is huge. And really removing barriers that make it harder for individuals with criminal records to turn their lives around. So one thing is, I think, the voting. I think once you've served your time, once you've done your debt to society, you should be able to to go ahead and vote. And another thing, too, that that I, I want to point out is that Uh, There are also people that are convicted that have been wrongly convicted. And a lot of times they are people of color. They are wrongly convicted for crimes that they they did not commit. So one thing that I think is is really interesting, if you check out, for example, the Innocence Project, uh, www.theinnocenceproject.org. It's really really good uh it it talks about certain cases where people again a lot of them are people of color they have been convicted based on really faulty evidence and really poor prosecution and they have been in prison for for years and years so yeah the innocence project really works to to help people that are wrongly convicted and really help them to to get their lives turned around so definitely check that out check out uh the 13th amendment by ava duvarney and and as always there's a lot of really good resources that talk about african-americans and mass incarceration okay Great. So it is that time of the episode where we are going to do Ask a Black Friend, but I also too want to say before we, we get to Ask a Black Friend that, uh, this, this episode or this, this topic of mass incarceration, there's a lot, there's really, really a lot that you can dig into and a lot, to, to, to look at. So I definitely encourage people to, yeah, check out documentaries, check out websites, check out all kinds of information because there's, there's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to say and there's a lot of things to to learn about okay so it is time for ask a black friend okay so since we've been talking about mass incarceration uh one question that I actually was asked a couple weeks ago and I thought it would be would be really good to to cover it on this episode is a question of black on black crime so uh, the discussion that i was having had to do with uh the fact that there is a lot of times violence particularly in cities like chicago for example or, or philadelphia where uh there are shootings and there are different um violence acts of violence that come up and so the conversation i was having is that people were sort of like hey i understand that yeah we need to change uh, police brutality and we have to change all this stuff but uh what are groups like black lives matter doing to end black black on black crime so yeah i thought that was a really good question and one that i want to tackle so my my first comment or my first uh thought about this is that black and black crime doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It's not a valid argument. It really isn't. And and I'll explain why. Black and black crime is not it's not a real thing because look, there's an FBI FBI study that said ninety four percent of black people, if they're killed, they'll they will likely be killed by another black person, okay? But 92% of white people, if they are killed, if they're murdered, they will likely be killed by other white people. But nobody talks about white-on-white crime, right? Nobody says anything like that. So, again, it's very... It's clear that, yes, okay, obviously it happens. Uh, And something like murder or something like, like this, yes, you are... The odds are that if you are killed you will probably be killed by somebody from your own race. But when was the last time you turned on Fox News or any of those stations and they said, oh, this person was was murdered by their ex-husband or or murdered by, by their neighbor and it was a white-on-white white crime? No. Nobody says that. I, I don't think I've ever, ever heard in my life that term, white-on-white white crime. And yet, if you go to these these same news places... All they want to talk about is black and black crime. And they want to use that as an excuse as to why we shouldn't talk about uh, police brutality or why we shouldn't talk about um, changing the criminal justice system. But I, I think it's yes, obviously, a lot of these communities, particularly communities of color, they need to do better and there needs to be more resources and there needs to be more of a, a plan moving forward. And certainly violence, some of the violence in these communities, particularly in some of these cities, are, are a big thing. But I think that is is misleading and I think it's not accurate. Again, to talk about things like black and black crime, Because, again, the the numbers are very similar. They're basically about even when you look at at white people and, again, the fact that you're probably going to be killed by a white person if you're white. And if you're black, you're probably going to be killed by a black person if you are, in in fact, murdered. So I think while it's uh, definitely sort of a hot topic at times, I don't think it's something that really really carries a lot of weight. But again, that's that's my opinion. So thank you for, for listening. That's all for today. And I want to end this episode with a, a quote from W.E.B. Dubois, who was, of course, a writer and an activist. And he said, the cost of liberty is less than the price of repression. And I thought that was really interesting. So thanks for listening. And I hope to see you all next week.